I will be reading from the book of Mark, uh, verse, um, chapter 12, verse 18 through 27. The Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died, left no, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, I'd like to start our time this morning by talking about something that people usually don't talk about. All right. This isn't like... Uh, it's not exactly appropriate conversation for a cocktail party, um, but this is church. And so if we're going to be able to talk about it anywhere, we've got to be able to talk about it here, okay? Um, I want to talk about death, all right? Let's start there. Let's talk about death. And what I want to talk about is the fact that we have a death problem, all right? And it's surprising, though. Our death problem is not actually that we're all going to die. I mean, that, that is the prop, That is a problem, okay? And I hope that's not news to anybody. Like, that we're all going to die. That's just p- part of the deal. It's built in. Um, and that is a fact. It's a tragic and an ugly one in our world. We're going to die. Uh, we know this. We felt the weight of this when someone close to us has died. In the face of death, we, we sort of just want the whole world to stop and to stand still. It's the power that death has. Like, this should matter. Everything else should stop. It's deeply wrong. But our our death problem is not just that we're all going to die. I think it's also this. I think it's that we, as a people, as a culture, as a society, don't know how to think about death anymore. Okay? The fact of death, for most of human history was just an accepted part of life. It was just a daily part of living. In fact, our earthly life, in many ways, used to be about preparing us to die. This is the way the ancients sort of thought about life. Life is an opportunity to prepare us to die and move on to the next world. But life, in a lot of ways today, in our modern world, is actually finding as many ways as possible not to think about the fact that we're going to die. Okay, so think about the kinds of things or the kinds of people that we hold up and we value. Um, in our modern world, we're doing the best we can to ignore death and live as, as if it isn't true. Instead of honoring and revering the elderly among us for their actual wisdom that they've accrued, right, and the actual faithfulness they've lived out in their life, our culture tends to honor and revere the young for their potential, um, and even though they haven't actually achieved anything yet, for their beauty, right? Our culture values the young and not the old. Instead of letting ourselves be still and quiet long enough for some of the sadness 
or the anxiety about death to actually settle in and start to shape us, we can't be alone for two minutes without pulling out. Our, I don't even go to the bathroom without my phone anymore, right? Like we have distracted ourselves so much that we can't just sit anymore in silence and let the reality of death begin to shape us. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker wrote, Modern man is drinking and drugging himself out of an awareness of death, or he spends his time shopping, which is the same thing. We try to close our eyes and our ears and our minds to the shadow of death that hangs over us, but we can't keep it out, not really, and so it haunts us. It's sort of always there, but not acknowledged, like a ghost. We know our lives should matter. We know we should mean something, that we're special and valued and that we're deeply important, but death, the finality of it, threatens that. Another philosopher. We're doing three philosophers to start, and then we're going to be done, okay? Charles Taylor, a Catholic philosopher, describes this sensation when someone close to us has died. It's not just that they matter to us a lot, and hence there's this grievous hole in our lives when our partner or our parent or our friend dies. It's also because they're so significant, they seem to demand eternity. I mean, a human life seems to demand eternity. We know there's something unique and special about it, but death seems to demand eternity. Otherwise, last philosophical quote, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, put it this way. My question that at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, uh, Tolstoy wrote, was the simplest of questions lying at the soul of every man. The question about without an answer to which one cannot live, it was what will come of what I'm doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? We're done with philosophers. Um, But I hope something they said resonates with you because it does with me. I mean, this question, can our lives really matter, really, carry the beauty and the meaning that we know they should if they just end? If the lights turn off and we're done. Our world, I think, is haunted by this question. And not having a great answer to it, we sort of avoid the question. And that's our death problem. It's not just that we're going to die. It's that we don't know where to put death in our mental categories and in our heart. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus addresses our death problem. It turns out that Christianity, of all things, a religion based on an old, dusty book, thousands of years old, this thing is the very thing our souls are longing for. This this gospel available to us in Jesus Christ by his grace is exactly what an aching, death-haunted world needs, whether we realize it or not. What Jesus offers here is more than kind of ongoing self-medication or wishful thinking or escapism that the world might offer. This isn't good vibes and happy thoughts. This isn't just like, you know, let's all leave church with a smile on our face. This is like on-the-ground, nitty-gritty, real-world, tangible hope that looks death and suffering and pain in the face, doesn't sugarcoat a single thing or back down a single inch, and then still offers hope that can survive the worst that the world throws at it. This is the hope that can survive cancer or divorce 
or bankruptcy. This is the kind of hope that can survive failed dreams, anxious hearts, depression, chronic pain. I mean, this is the hope that answers Tolstoy's question. This is the hope that offers a meaning for our lives that even the inevitable death awaiting us will not destroy. This is the thing about Christianity that makes everything else true. If this is real, if this resurrection life is possible, um, if it's possible to live forever in glory with God, well, this changes everything about our lives. This changes everything. And the occasion on which Jesus gave us this great gift of hope is in yet another confrontation with his opponents. Okay, so we've been marching through Mark, and we are in the last week of Jesus' life. This is the last week before he goes to the cross and will be raised again. And this final week of Jesus' life is sort of like Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day. Like every day, Jesus wakes up, and it's the same thing over and over again with slight variations. There's just opponents coming at him left and right. It's like wave after wave of theological challenges. He just wakes up in the morning. He's like, oh, I'm still, I'm doing this again. Okay, here we go. Sometimes it's the Pharisees who challenge Jesus. Sometimes it's the scribes. Today, the wave that comes his way is the Sadducees. And this is actually the only time in the book of Mark that we encounter the Sadducees. This is the only time they show up. Like the Pharisees, they were a part of the Jewish religious establishment. But unlike the Pharisees, these guys were like the urban elites, okay? So this group was deeply connected with the ruling Roman government at the time. They were deeply in love with the Greek culture. They were pleasure-loving, wealthy, aristocratic. They had long family connections to religious and political power. If the Pharisees are the, the serious ones with a capital S, they're like dour and hard and inflexible, the Sadducees are the sophisticated ones with a capital S, okay? They are modern, they're enlightened They are highly educated and connected. And an important thing to know about them is that they only, when they read the Bible, they only took the first five books of the Old Testament, what we know as the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only five books that they took as God's authoritative revelation about himself. They read the rest of the Bible. They read the rest of the Old Testament, but they sort of saw it as a commentary on the first five books and not necessarily as divinely inspired, okay? So these guys are locked in to only the first five books of the Bible. They were anti-supernaturalists. They didn't believe in an afterlife or a resurrection. And on this day, they tried to trap Jesus in a problem, a sort of logic puzzle that they probably used all the time, okay? This is like a classic argument for them. Uh, So just a little background here so we know what Jesus is responding to when he eventually unleashes this flood of hope and promises that the Sadducees could not have seen coming and when they encountered Jesus, but that we desperately need to see when we do encounter Jesus, okay? So, a little background. In Deuteronomy 25, again, part of the Old Testament that they do accept as God's word, God gives Israel this law as a provision for kind of a unique situation. And, and we just heard it read. Um, it came to be known as leveret marriage. Basically, if a man died before he um, had a male son to inherit his land, um, that duty fell to his brother, 
And so the, this way that the land that God gave to each tribe and clan and family would stay in that tribe and clan and family, and families or clans wouldn't lose land over time and lose their inheritance in God's land over time if they didn't have a male heir. And so there was this thing called leveret marriage. So their little puzzle is this. If God clearly teaches this, clearly teaches leveret marriage, um, then he can't also promise resurrection. Think how absurd it would get. Think how crazy it would be in heaven. I mean, um, uh, this woman has been married to seven different brothers, and in verse 23, uh, they basically summarize their argument by saying, in the resurrection, Jesus, got to imagine air quotes here, right? In this resurrection you speak of, when they rise again, more air quotes, um, whose wife is she going to be? It's supposed to be like this gotcha moment, like, ha-ha, got you on that one. But it's also sort of mocking, right? It's also sort of making fun of the fact that he and others believe in an afterlife and a resurrection that's not very sophisticated. You can kind of see like elementary Sadducees using this one on their Pharisee buddies on the playground, you know? Like they're like, uh, they're kind of mocking them, mocking what they believe. I mean, two brothers makes the point. Seven is making fun, okay? So they're making fun of Jesus and what he believes. The view the Sadducees hold here, I think, is actually incredibly modern and secular in its assumptions about reality. We know these assumptions. I mean, we, we hold some of these assumptions, partly at least. A supernatural world, okay? Uh, does that really intersect and uphold and infuse our natural world? I mean, it's like the world we live in right now. Is it like covered and, and cotemporous and infused with supernatural spirits? I mean, really? Really, Jesus? Um, are, are we really waiting to go home in the sky after we die? I, I mean, come on. Didn't most of us give up that kind of like hopeful, wishful thinking um, after middle school sometime? Are we Grow up to the real world, Jesus. Like, wake up to reality. I think for us today, even if we do believe in the supernatural, even if we do believe in the resurrection, maybe have for a long time, this is a really tempting way to think for us as well, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to believe in a supernaturally infused world in today's modern world. It's hard to take the reality of eternal life in heaven and a resurrection seriously in today's world. But Jesus does not waffle on this one, okay? He looks these guys straight in the eye, and he is not afraid to say to them, you are quite wrong on this one, okay? Quite wrong. You're not just wrong. You're like quite wrong on this one. Verse 24, he says to them, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These men, these Sadducees, they were experts in God's word, They were cozied up to the most powerful empire the world had yet known. If they knew anything, it was scripture and power. And Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, the reason you don't understand reality is because you don't understand the very two things you think you understand the best, scripture and power. I'm going to tell you about power and I'm going to tell you about scripture And as I tell you these things, I'm going to reveal reality to you in a way that you could not have imagined. Because until you know there's a resurrection, you're still stuck in your death problem. We are still stuck in our death problem. 
So Jesus goes on to show them and us the deepest truths of reality, the scripture and the power of God. He shows the power of God first. So picking up in verse 25, Jesus continues. When they rise from the dead, not if they rise, but when they rise from the dead. This is not something Jesus is iffy on. The resurrection for Jesus is a built-in part of the human experience. This will happen when this happens. For Jesus, the resurrection to eternal life and relationship with the Father and relationship with all of God's people, his new family, it's as real as the breakfast he just ate. It's as real as the eggs he breakfast, okay? And it's as, it's as certain as the fact that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. The resurrection for Jesus is as built in to his life as the most tangible things. And this is what I mean that the resurrection hope, the Christian hope, it's not like a dreamy, wishful, good vibes, happy thoughts kind of thing. This is like nitty gritty on the ground as built into our lives as the friends we have, as our family, as the milk my kids spilled on the floor this morning. Like, the resurrection is real. It's actual. That future life is certain. Do you think of your future with God in that sort of tangible way? I mean, does your mind ever drift to what it's going to be like with him in heaven while you mow the lawn or drive your kids to soccer practice. In the same way our mind drifts to the projects we have going at work, or, I don't know, the anxieties that we're, we're dealing with in life, or that trip we're going to take in a few months. For Jesus, the resurrection is as real as all of that. It's a built-in thing to our life. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And here he begins to show us what the resurrection will be like, the transformative power that God has for our lives. And since the Sadducees brought it up first, Jesus just continues on with the example of marriage. Marriage in the resurrection um, is an example. It's a, it's, a, it's a case study for Jesus to show us what the resurrection is going to be like. We learn in Ephesians 5 and other places in the Bible that God created marriage to be a gift, He also created marriage to be a sign, okay? Marriage during this life, during our existence here, it's a signpost, it's a foretaste, it's a a kind of appetizer of Jesus' unending, intimate, personal, loyal, covenantal love that he has with all of his people. But when you have the real thing, you don't need the sign for the thing anymore. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Okay, so for example, we have a lovely, well-built, functional sign that sits at the end of our driveway that says Grace Church, right? I love it. It's great. Stone, well-made. It's a little small for my taste, but um, it's a great sign, okay? Um, I would never want someone interested in visiting our church to pull into the driveway, park in front of the sign, take in its beauty for a little while, really experience it, and then drive off and go back home. Right, Because the signpost is there to help them get inside the church, isn't it? The signpost is there to help them meet you all, to help them encounter the hospitality and the invitation and the warmth and the grace of the people of God. The sign is out front to help them encounter God's word and have an encounter with Jesus himself. If they stop, if they stop at the sign, then they've missed the point. And... 
once we make it inside and start to experience what the life of the church is really like, the sign's still nice, but it's sort of unimportant. I mean, how many of you regulars even notice the sign as you drive in anymore? You don't have to because you know that you're going right past it to get to the thing that it points to. In the same way, in the resurrection, when you have the full experience of the deepest intimacy and love that exists in the universe, when when you have the full safety of permanent covenantal love, when you have a loyalty of love, not just for a lifetime, but for eternity, you don't need the sign. And Jesus is saying you can set marriage aside. This is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's worth saying real quick. Um, It's not exactly the point of the passage, but um, we will all be single in heaven. Okay, that's interesting, right? Um, And this is more than just interesting. This is actually part of a trajectory that God has been pointing towards in the entire Bible. I mean, if you think about it, at the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, marriage was universal. There were no single people in the Garden of Eden, okay? And then in the Old Testament, marriage in society at that point was sort of a disadvantage. I mean, it was looked down upon if you were single. It was, um, it was hard to connect, hard to have rights, hard to be in that society as a single person. By the time we get to the, the New Testament, singleness has all of a sudden become an advantage for the kingdom. Paul talks about being single as a gift to the church for the kingdom in the good of the world. And then by the time we get to heaven, marriage doesn't exist anymore. It's singleness has become universal. We are all on a trajectory towards singleness. And this is unique. This is unique to Christianity. This is countercultural when it was written thousands of years ago. And it's countercultural today. The Bible infuses great value and worth and esteem and mission in singleness just like it does in families, just like it does in marriage. Everyone in God's family that he is bringing together is endowed with this great value, dignity, and mission. And for all of us, married or single now, our singleness in heaven won't mean less intimacy and connection and love, but more. Heaven, in other words, resurrection life, is something so transformative and powerful that all of the greatest experiences of of our life here, all the deepest longings and the glimpses of joy that were granted in this life are just a shadow of what is to come. They're just the sign at the end of the driveway helping us encounter God and his people for eternity. These are the maps that tell us about the country we'll one day be in. They're the menus that tell us about the meal and the feast we're going to enjoy. And when you're there and when you're eating the feast, you don't need the menu anymore. And you don't need the map anymore. They're not the thing itself. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. What he's saying is all those longings that that we think we're almost there, but we can never quite grasp in this world, those are actually little breadcrumbs that God has been laying out for us, the longings of our heart, that ultimately points to the transformative, powerful life he will give us in the resurrection. This hope, this living hope that he talks about, this is what solves our death problem. I mean, it not only tells us that death is not the end of our story, but in every important, meaningful way, it's the beginning of our story. It also tells us that our lives today have great dignity and value 
because we know they carry on into eternity. We will be transformed by the power of God. We will experience the joy that we ache for in this life. This will happen because God has married the sinners he saves and he brings us into a relationship with him that lasts forever. So, how can we know this is true? I mean, Jesus seems pretty certain of this, right? He looks the Sadducees in the face. He says, you guys are quite wrong. But he's God, okay? So that's unfair. So how do we know that this is true? How do we know that when we die, this is actually what's going to happen to us forever in heaven? How can we be as confident of this as Jesus? Because God's not only powerful enough to do it, he's also promised it to all who look to him in faith. And this is how Jesus closes his time with the Sadducees and how we'll close ours this morning. Verse 26 and 27. As for the dead being raised, he said, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, one quick thing to notice here. Jesus picks a verse from Exodus, uh, to prove to the Sadducees that the resurrection is real. There's actually much clearer verses in the Old Testament that he could have used to say, hey, look, the Old Testament promises resurrection. But what Jesus does is he takes a passage from, again, those first five books that the Sadducees hold as authoritative. And this is actually really kind of Jesus, okay? Jesus is not um, dropping like a truth bomb, you know, like drop the mic and walk away, like you guys should have known that and like not willing to engage them. He's actually meeting them where they're at They have all kinds of theology problems, okay? The Sadducees are messed up in all kinds of ways. But Jesus goes to where they are, meets them in a place where they both can appeal to the same authority and they both value the same scriptures, and he goes there to help them along. It's actually a really kind way for Jesus to engage these people that are kind of doing the gotcha, tricky thing with him, okay? He's really gracious in his response to them. But to be fair, this is not the most obvious place that Jesus could use to prove the resurrection is true from the Old Testament. I mean, you and I could read Exodus 3, 6. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob for about a million years and not come to the conclusion like, oh, the resurrection is so true. Like, that verse isn't obvious. What is Jesus saying? What's he getting at here? Here's his point. At the time Exodus was written, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for 500 years. These were the patriarchs of Israel, the men that God had made promises to, abundant descendants, productive land. They would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And so when God said this to Moses 500 years after they were dead, he said, God is, I am the God of these men. Uh, Not was the God, not used to be the God, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's reminding Moses that when he gives his word and his promise, there is no expiration date on God's promises to his people. Okay? God's word will stand forever. But even more than that, this is the moment that God reveals his personal name, his identity to Moses. This is where Moses asks him, he's about to be sent to Pharaoh, he's about, about to be sent back to Egypt, and he says, who should I say sent me? Like when I go to stand in front of Pharaoh in his court and I say, let my people go, who should I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Yahweh. This is God's personal name, his deep character, his very heart. And so Jesus is saying to us here that God's own name, his deepest identity, not only means that he's the source of life for the whole universe creation, that he's a source of love. It not only means that he's deeply relational, that he binds himself to the people that he loves. Jesus is saying that built in to the very name and character of God is the promise of resurrection. Now, until I studied this passage this week, I had never heard that. I had never heard that God's own name and character and identity promises resurrection life to the very people that he loves. I mean, this is built into God's identity, his name. It cannot be otherwise. If God makes a promise to his people, he will keep that promise. No expiration date on it. And nothing we can do, nothing that happens to us, can keep God from fulfilling his word and his promise of grace. The power of our sin cannot stop God from saving us. The power of suffering and evil in this world cannot stop God from bringing his truth and justice and goodness and beauty to his creation. Our default tendency to misuse and abuse relationships cannot keep God from being in a relationship with us. Our selfishness cannot stop him from selflessly loving us. The very name of God, I am, Yahweh, means relationship, And therefore, it means resurrection. He will not abandon the people that he loves. And if God has promised himself to you, which he's done through Jesus Christ, as you accept him in faith, then not even death will keep you, keep him from keeping his promises to you forever. So our question here that Jesus leaves us with at the end is, do you believe the promises of God? Do you believe that the resurrection life is that real and that tangible and that certain and that it reshapes everything about our life? It, that, that it can actually um, be an answer to our death problem, to our suffering problem, to our pain problem, because it's so sure and so real. Jesus says you can trust this. He says this is real. He says there is a living resurrection hope that has been promised to his people, and that your future is certain in Jesus Christ. This is the thing that we can all bank on. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, this word to us this morning. Thanks for showing us how to read the Old Testament. Um, Thanks for showing us the character and the identity of God. Thanks for the love that you have secured us in by dying on the cross and rising again. These gifts of resurrection life and eternal hope, um, they can feel airy and sort of distant and sort of hopeful and wishful and not as tangible and real as our life's problems and certainly not as final and eternal as death. But Jesus, help our hearts trust the promises of your gospel. Help us bank on eternal life with you like it's as certain as the sun will rise tomorrow. Jesus, help our hearts grow wide to accept that love and the promises of your grace. We ask these things in your name. Amen.